0: Old modes or the new modes. So, in a world where everyone has access via an API call to the super powerful model, Clara, brand matters, switching costs matters, trust matters, scale matters, network effects matters. So, all the things that made the previous generation companies great will
1: still matter in 2025. Welcome to Ask More of AI, a podcast at the intersection of AI and business. I'm Clara Shai, CEO of Salesforce AI. And I'm excited to be here with Jerry Ted. Jerry is a partner at the venture capital firm Greylock, where he works with entrepreneurs building companies in cloud infrastructure, data products, enterprise SaaS, and of course, AI. So you've been investing for quite some time now. What changed in the last nine months and what is going on in the world of AI through the lens of venture capital?
0: Um. Well, obviously, the large language models changed. And what it was, you know, AI and machine learning was always a technology that we used. I mean, Google was using for recommendations and your search and algorithms and and ad recs and Facebook were all machine learning, all some form of AI. And um, I would say three, four years ago, the research on large models, especially people were skeptical. And then obviously, uh, Google wrote this paper, attention is all you need. They published the Transformer models. And, you know, it's you know, you know, quote Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada. The rest is history. But the impact of large language models was basically predict the next word, the next token. No one thought it would work as well as they do today to kind of anticipate and give you answers that are text-driven, right? We talk about images later, but for, for text-driven, it had this magic ability. And... Um, when I first started playing with you know these large language models like GPT three point five and GPT four and then the image models like Dally, um, it felt like we were touching the future, right? All of a sudden it's like early days when you first played with the iPhone or first had your first Google result search where Google was magic, or the first iPhone was like this magic box in your hand. Uh, playing with these new AI models was wow, you could touch the future, and so I think these large models in particular have changed what is possible, but more importantly, what we think is possible, right? And that creativity of the imagination is really what makes founders great.
1: And how is that affecting your investments, both the companies that are AI companies, as well as companies that may not have started off as AI companies? And of course, they're trying to reinvent themselves as AI companies.
0: It's actually the second gallery is, is super interesting. Um, we should, You can go Hours and hours and that, but it's both. It's you think about AI. There's multiple layers, right? Um, there's core AI technology like the foundation models, the infrastructure to build AI applications, like things like Llama Index that we invest in the seed, um, and then there's applications built on top of it um, to build AI. And you know, I think I wrote this blog where he talked about this system of intelligence, right? Using AI to build intelligent applications. Uh, it's changed a lot because both the core technology to enable building these new applications have changed dramatically. So you think about what it meant to build an app in the client-server era. You know, your, your database and your server is one thing. Uh, building an app for the iPhone mobile era was a different stack. And then cloud obviously a different stack to be SaaS and multi-tenant. And they never replaced They kind of like, they add up. Uh, and so now we think about what does it mean to build these AI applications from foundation models. Vector databases, um, you know, uh, retrieval augmentation generation models or RAG models. We think about what it means to actually have memory for these apps and make recommendations and uh, understand trust, trustworthy AI. There's all these like buzzwords people throw around because we're trying to reimagine what a, a full stack AI app means today. So that's interesting. So we're investing in the new stack, if you will. But then to your the second category, we have existing companies that weren't AI native and then new startups that want to be AI native. And um it's both one, for the first category, if you weren't using AI to begin with, you say, okay, how can large language models of AI change how I do this workflow or this thing, right? And the thing is always for for an application like SaaS, software is usually a business process, right? In, in bits, hire to fire, order to cash, right? And and SaaS companies were about digitizing that workflow. With AI, we think about how I can skip two or three of those steps in the process with this AI magic. Or number two, using AI, how can I acquire users differently, right? And I, we call this in, in the blog and other people system of engagement, right? GPT and chat especially Change how we think about interacting with software. So all of a sudden, companies that were some normal workflow, um, like a bunch of screens on your phone, can now use chat or something else to communicate or anticipate your needs. And I think um, Salesforce acquired Slack a few years ago because they saw that chat in the enterprise was becoming a dominant system engagement, right? It's how we interact. It's how we communicate. And all of a sudden, that chat metaphor in the enterprise powered by Slack and then Teams and everything else. And obviously that was copied from iMessage and WhatsApp, et cetera. Instead of a human, you have uh, an AI agent or a bot on the other side. So
1: that interface question is so interesting, right? It's going from punch cards to using code syntax to interact with machines. And then at Salesforce, I mean, we built our business on clicks, not code, sure. Right, the declarative workflow builder. And then now it's conversations, not clicks. I mean, the early Salesforce was built on what Soquel, right? The,
0: the Salesforce query language. Um, and now it's conversation not clicks. And you never you never replace the system engagement, it's always additive, right? right? It's like it's like now clicks and touch replace, you know, typing, your command line, but command lines are still there. Um your voice assistant at Alexa at home is still there. So but you still have physical switches. Um, but I think the question is if ai is really that intelligent and omnipresent how does what does software look like in 2025 2026 and of
1: course that's your job as a venture capitalist to predict that so so what is your view currently my job is to find the founders that
0: predict that or create that um you know my my vision is i think like i said it's additive so it doesn't replace everything but i think uh chat as a simple engagement as a metaphor for sure will become more commonplace for the long fat tail of tasks. What I mean by that is it's always still faster to flip a switch than say hey Siri or something like that, right? Sorry for the folks at home that I just activated things. Um, it's always faster to hit a you know type in query versus like, you know, imagine something on, on voice. So if it's a defined workflow, it's quicker to hit a button. But what AI and these chat agents, let you do is there's a long fat tail of problems, questions, tasks that you want to do. And oftentimes you can't anticipate these workflows as a developer. But if you, Clara, can ask the app circa Star Trek, you know, computer, do this, do this, or interactively ask a bunch of questions or have the agent the persona asks you questions, which is even better. So you see these chatbot agents asking you questions. We're in a company called um, Inflexion that has this bot called Pi, right? And Pi will ask you a bunch of questions. And asking you those questions, it will figure out what you want and how to help you. And so that's pretty cool, right? So instead of you being declarative, saying "Do this," the bot will say, you know, "Well, what's your problem? How are you feeling? What are you trying to solve?" And based upon that thread, something like Pi from Inflexion will say, "Oh." This is what you need.
1: It kind of reminds me of that saying. It's like, you don't know what you don't know. Sure. And here we have Pi or these other new agents that can really help us um, uncover what our intents and goals might be.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, a module like Clippy back in the day was trying to guess what Microsoft Word was trying to do. You know, it had the right idea, probably probably way too early execution. But it, it's, like I said, it's kind of cool to touch the future. And there's a million founders out there working on all levels of the stack um, from the app, the interface, to the system intelligence uh, that we're excited to, to back invest in.
1: So you've invested in some of these, but you're hearing far more pitches than you're investing in. What's the most common set of themes at each layer of the stack that you're hearing pitches on? And then also, where do you think the, the most differentiated value is? Uh, well, I think the, the,
0: that's the last—that's the billion, $10 billion yes. question, right? It's, it's where in the stack does a value accrue? Right. And um, we talked about they wrote this blog called The New Moats years ago when I read this called The New New Moats, which is say, okay, in this AI world, where does value accrue? And I would say the pitches are up and down the stack. For sure, we invest in a few of the foundation models like inflection, Adept, building like kind of the core technology that all sit alongside OpenAI, Palm from Google, Anthropic, et cetera. We've invested in stuff in the middle layer like tooling, like Snorkel, True Era, Llama Index that helps you build these applications. And then we invested at the app layer, right? So kind of like Tome is doing like next generation PowerPoint using AI. Um, just named first of Starbucks coda. Another one's like productivity software using AI. Um I would say I, coming from a, a cloud data infrastructure background, spent a lot of time at kind of the infrastructure and the lower level, levels. But increasingly, we've seen a, a rush of creativity at the app layer, right? And say there are a category of apps that are okay. They're just like ChatGPT or, or Barred from Google, just wrapped. Um, we've seen a bunch applying AI to different verticals, healthcare, legal, financial services. Um, and then we've seen... You know The creativity is like imagining once you have this kind of like super-powered intern, if you will, what else can you do? And I would say it's been fun to see all the pitches. But like you say we only invest in a handful of companies a year, and it's always hard to say, hard, say no because um, it's hard to guess what's going to work or not work. But to the crucial questions, where – Where does the value accrue? And, you know, I think there'll be some value accrued to foundation models for sure. That's why they've raised billions and billions of dollars, partly because they have to for training costs. I do believe there will be some new infrastructure middleware tools because how you build these apps change. But I do believe we are seeing a new generation of both SaaS experiences, like different things like CRM or or, or, uh, ERP applications, but I think we're going to see a bunch of new consumer experiences, too, right? And I'm not a consumer investor, but you see at least AI avatars, videos, um, new music and the content created. So I think that's going to be pretty fascinating going forward, too.
1: So you referenced your your Motes blog post. I read it. It's very interesting. And a lot of, of others have read it as well. Let's talk about those Motes. And I'm curious to get your take on how those apply at each layer of the stack.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know it's always feels weird to like quote yourself but um yeah you know the, the first blog i wrote in 2017 called the new moats was in the world of cloud and saas and open source where does valley cruise moats historically have been um you know moats people talk a lot about moats in, in tech right but it's like you know deep IP network effects right like facebook even like look at what twitter x.com I mean network effects are so hard to counter um, brand switching costs those are the classic moats And then the new new moats both in 2023 and revisiting 2017 was what I got right, what I got wrong, right? And and the question was, you know, in this world of cloud and SaaS and AI, uh, what happens? And arguably, you know, for a while looked like OpenAI and a couple of the big companies would have the main advantage in this AI generation. And then I think, you know, Llama 2 from Facebook or Meta open source as well as a bunch of other open source models, kind of changed the game. And, you know, I revisit, okay, now everyone has access to this powerful technology. What happens? And, you know, the the TLDR, the too long, didn't read response was the old moats are the new moats. <laughs> so in a world where everyone has access via an API call to this super powerful model, Clara, brand matters. Switching costs matters. Trust matters. Scale matters. Network effects matters. So all the things that made the previous generation companies great will still matter in 2025.
1: But maybe they'll manifest in, in different ways.
0: I Absolutely. That's the only concept. Yeah.
1: So let's, let's talk about some of those. I mean, what does it mean to have deep tech? Do you have to have that underlying model? Or, like you said, because of the open source um, options that are out there, it's no longer deep tech because anybody can access it.
0: So um, – different horses for different courses. So if you want to fight in the foundation model space, yes, you need deep tech, and can you build a better foundation model? And there's a bunch of IP around that in terms of data quality, data curation, scale, et cetera, right? So there's definitely IP around building foundation models. But I think there's only going to be a handful of those foundation models given size scale constraints. So then if you look at some of the other applications like building support or CRM or um, a SaaS application for healthcare, where is the IP and tech? It's not going to be in the model itself, but it could be in um, proprietary data. So you're in a vertical like healthcare and oil and gas. How can you tune or use that data with the model together? Um, It could be the same old deep tech in terms of workflow, right? You understand how in the healthcare landscape or the oil and gas landscape or defense landscape what the customer wants, right? And so uh, the technology around workflow is still IP, um, there's still aspects of technology like scale and, and, and speed and security that still matter, don't go away when you're using big models. So and
1: arguably are harder and more important. I mean, think about all correct. these new security questions, trust questions that, that I hear all the time from customers.
0: Oh, it's, well, that's why brand is trustworthy. Awesome, may play towards the incumbents, right? You know, Salesforce is now one of the known brands in the cloud. And so when you think about – uh, brand, trustworthiness, security, that actually skews towards the incumbents versus the startups. And so for sure, as a startup, you know, we have to explain to all the customers why this model is not hallucinating, right? Why it's is an accurate um, response. And, you know, that's always half the battle.
1: Well, one of the things that you you have talked about before, too, is, you know, it, the foundation models are improving exponentially. I mean, that was that's one of the amazing things about AI is that they can learn so much faster than a human can. And one of the risks you, you've called out before is that the foundation models themselves become so capable that they start to compete against some of these applications um, that have been built built on them. Can you talk more about that? So the question is: uh, these foundation. If you think about like the
0: the, you know set of problems out there in the world, right? This, if you can imagine a graph of, pr- of problems out there, um, you can argue that foundation, today software can solve what we call the fat head, like repeatable business processes, you know, ordering my coffee at Starbucks, wherever it is, over and over again. And there's a SaaS application to do that, right? One job over and over again. Think of that like the the robot arm putting a door on a car in a factory in Detroit. So all of a sudden, when these foundation models are so flexible and they're the problem solving machines more than anything else, uh, they can now, without any programming or guidance, start to solve kind of this long fat tail multi-purpose, of multi-purpose, right? How to get from point A to point B? You know, you know order this um, inventory, product from, you know, India through the Philippines and past customs. That's kind of a – that's a software practice today, but these models can do it. Now, there's a question of speed and cost, right, because the foundation models cost money for inference execution. And so today, it's probably not practical for the long tail or of problems. Like, you wouldn't run a huge model to automate, you know, the lights in your house. But as you think about the models getting bigger, more capable, and if the cost curves come down, you can see some of these big models solving these
1: multi-purpose problems. So interesting, and you know, we've talked before about large models, but also small models. And you know, we saw that Llama two, the open source model from from Facebook, comes in different sizes. Yeah. And we've been working on models of different sizes at Salesforce too. What are you seeing? What's your What are your predictions around the role of smaller models versus these larger ones?
0: Yeah, this is um, uh, and I firstly I I don't know the answer to the future, I can tell you what, you know... It's that,
1: just fun for me to put you on the yeah, spot, you know? I
0: I, oh, I reserved a right to change my mind in the future, but for sure, there would be a world for both big models and small models, right? Because small models are going to be faster and cheaper for a set of problems, right? And you say... Equal size, equal size. A, a fine-tuned, smaller model will outperform a bigger general-purpose model for a bunch of reasons, right? The, the data set's tuned. Uh, you don't need to use a giant context window. So you're not, you know, burning a bunch of tokens, etc. And so the world will have small models as well as big models. The question, Clara, is if you split the percent of problem, the pie of problems, what set of applications need small models for big models is. 80% of the world's problems and applications solved by big models or 20%, right? And I think the debate is, you know, what um, percent of these software problems or problems in general should be solved by big models or small models and or medium, right? Because there's, there's a different um, models for different problems. And that, I don't know the future. If I would bet right now, in the near term, I think a bunch of small and medium-sized models are super relevant for a bunch of reasons, right? Privacy, security, costs, etc. As these models get bigger and bigger, I think they will solve more and more problems. So these bigger models would just be more general purpose problem solving. But I, I don't think um, the pie is fixed, right? So if you think of what it is today, I think a bunch of small models and medium-sized models would solve today's problems. But I think there's a bunch of new problems in the, the market of the TAM expands, like like all technology. The, the number of things you can address with AI expands. And big models are be driving
1: that TAM expansion, if you
0: will. And yeah, so, we'll just
1: have more tools in our toolkit. Right.
0: Absolutely. And, and you can't anticipate those things. Like, you know, neither can I. No one anticipated, like, calling a car and her phone eight years ago, right? And that became a, a default uh, experience of ours are our ordering food online easily. And so I think there'll be new tools in our toolkit that will be enabled by these big models. And so that's that's how I see it going. It's big models solving these problems, but small purposeful models filling in um, certain jobs.
1: I, I agree with you. You know, as AI technologies become more powerful and pervasive, something we talk about all the time here at Salesforce is what is the role and responsibility of us as technology providers, investors, to ensure that you know we're we're doing this in a responsible and ethical way. Um, and so, what are your thoughts around you know bias, privacy, job displacement? How do we ensure the responsible development and de- deployment of these technologies? Oh, uh, gosh, that is, that's is—that's more than a curveball. That's like a, a cannon. of no questions. Um,
0: I think first and foremost, we're all um, global citizens, right? And I, I think as investors and executives and, and founders, technologists, we – two things. One – want to change the world in a positive way, and I think me and my partners were optimists more than anything else, right? I wouldn't be an adventure capitalist. I wouldn't be backing founders if I didn't want to always see the good and the potential. So I would say, in general, I think it's our responsibility to enable technology because um, it would be criminal to slow it down, right? I think my partner, Reed Hoffman, says, look, you can have an AI doctor and an AI tutor in every pocket it would be criminal to prevent that from happening. So I think in, in some ways it's our responsibility to make sure that reality, that future comes faster. Um, and it becomes commonplace. But like you said, with all these changes, there's consequences. And I think when we we work on development, work in these companies, we're conscious about it, right? I think we were early backers of Airbnb, right? Understanding that that enabled a whole set of economic opportunity, but you know what it would do for risk and costs. Um, there's always trade-offs. But on the whole, I do believe they're expanding the pie, right, the GDP or the market, that that's overall a good thing. Do you think that AI should be regulated? Um, I think it's a loaded question, regulation. I say the, the easy answer is yes, if you're a big company, because I think regulation generally benefits the incumbents, right? Because regulation normally means cost. And if you're a startup, you don't have the capital to regulate yourself like the big companies. So I would say the easy answer is yes, but it kind of like depends. I hate the BS answer depends what regulation is. I don't disagree with controls or provenance or um, trustworthy tools or guidelines on ai like s- security is a separate category we don't say we got to regulate software with to say we need secure software right we got to patch it we got to update it we got to make sure we're not hacked by you know criminals or you know 12 year old you know hackers um out there and so we say we don't say software has to be regulated we says say it has to be secure and it's never 100% secure right i think someone tweeted out um Trustworthy AI or indefensible AI is like trying to write a 100% secure operating system. Software is never 100% secure, but we get better at it by patching and updating it, right? Salesforce included, you know, Windows, Linux included. So AI, regulation, not regulation, is never going to be perfect from the get-go. But the whole idea is you use it, you put it in practice, and you fix it and improve it. Right or get the AI to improve itself, which and you go low. in with that
1: expectation that it's not going to be a hundred percent. It never is,
0: right? It never. Nothing's ever done. Humans are never done. AI software is never done. You know, from the first piece of software shipped, you know, until the last update of Salesforce, there's always patches and updates. So AI is never done. And so, does it be regulated. You have to tell me what the regulation is. Should it be um, protected? Should people care about the quality and security and the trust regions of AI? Absolutely. Do we care about security and quality of the software? Yes. We have compliance audits, audit SOC 2. We do penetration testing on the software to make sure hackers can not get to it. You know, we we publish, you know, uh, I think Salesforce has salesforce.com slash trust, right, in terms of do you trust your cloud or SaaS application going up? You know, Salesforce pioneered, trust SaaS from the get-go because people didn't believe it back when they're running servers on prem. So just like Salesforce kind of pioneered, trust me, running your application in the cloud with their data and everything running, you know, 99.99% of the time, yeah, companies with untrustworthy AI will not do well in the market, and customers going to buy the AI that's always updated, patched um, with provenance and trust and security. So I think you know, as an investor and a capitalist, clearly I believe the market will demand it,
1: and the market will reward it. And so, I think my view is it's easier to do in the enterprise, okay, because you have companies that have the resources, the means, the the alignment to to verify their providers. I think it's it's harder. It'll be harder in the consumer space.
0: I think you're probably right, and I'm not as quite familiar, but it, yeah, there's motivation in enterprise, right? Because the product you build is a product you sell, and I'm, I'm selling you trust. I'm selling you security. On consumer, potentially not, right? Because consumer, the product you build is not necessarily the product you sell, right? You, you build photo sharing, you're selling ads, <laughs> right? You build certs, you're selling ads. Um, not all the time, but, you know, I'm, I'm being a little um, facetious here. Uh, Well, basically, that's
1: how the majority of the consumer internet is financed, just through advertising.
0: So when those incentives
1: are different,
0: per se, I think that's that's the question is, you know, how do you align the incentive to make sure your AI is, you know, trustworthy and secure? And you can argue in enterprise, the alignment probably makes more sense. And the consumer side, I'm sure it can align those incentives as well, right? I mean, and the consumer side, if you leak my data or, you, you know, something bad happens to my information, my personal information, I care, Right. And you, you, you leave the site, you go to, you know, Google always says like competition is one click away. You go from Google to Bing or something else. Right. So I say you can align the incentives clearly. It's just making sure that's obvious and, and then there's choice. And part of our job
1: as investors is to make sure there's choice. So you've invested in a number of AI companies. You've also invest, invested in non-AI companies. And I'm curious if you're seeing the new wave of startups, whether they're in Camp 1 or Camp 2, are they being built and scaled differently because of AI?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think AI everything being built and scaled differently in AI for sure. I mean, just look at how software is being built today. Um, Things like GitHub Copilot, right, is helping you build software better, faster. AI tools to make your software more secure. Um, so even if you're not a quote-unquote AI company, AI is impacting how software is built. Right? It's making you more productive. It's helping you communicate. It's, like I said, it's AI or die. So if you're not an AI company, you're using AI in some form or fashion. And, you know, instead of searching on you know, a Stack Overflow or a Reddit for articles, you're asking Bar or ChatGPT for answers.
1: And do you see the startups that you've invested in scale faster than previously because of this?
0: Um, yeah, for sure. I, I think some of the code pilot copilot, or the code completion tools are making developers more productive. it's It's amazing once you people are skeptical, but you know once you try it, it's kind of amazing how well it works, right? And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of code tools, security tools. I think we're going to see um, observability tools. We're in to a company called Chronosphere that does like you know a data doll competitor. They're leveraging AI to make their applications better. And so I, I think you're going to see that permeate everything. AI or not and obviously the AI companies um, it's interesting right they're moving very fast because of the underlying substrate the models are moving so fast um I mean maybe they're limited by the GPU allocations or something like that but we're definitely see uh, the iteration the cycle time pick up which makes my life so much easier
1: <laughs> you and me both I mean it really is it's hard to plan a software cycle. Oh. When the underlying substrate or various levels of the substrate are con- are constantly evolving. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, just think about waterfall development and software to agile development
0: software to like where we are today. We're just constantly pushing updates now. And to your point, it's um, hard to plan. And uh, in many ways, people are just holding their breath and anticipating what's going to happen. And, you know, it makes my job super fun or challenging to try to anticipate, okay, there's new research on AI coming out every week, every month, right? And you can argue, for example, these large models are the thing right now, but there's, you know, other models, other technology coming out that could be different or better, right? Um, And I don't know how that changed the game. And, you know, I don't know what that bears. But you know, part of my job is to keep investing and looking for that that next thing.
1: How did you become a venture capitalist? Just for anyone who doesn't know Jerry Chen.
0: Uh, I, I, pre- I think plenty of people do not know who I am. Um, look, I, it's venture capital is something you kind of happen into. I think the first time around, I worked at uh, another VC firm before Greylock the dot com days You remember them i was an associate hired to excel by um, peter and teresa you know two other VCs and i saw the rise of the nasdaq and the dot com companies and the crash after that i'm like i never want to be a VC again right it was just it was just tough days because i was like 26 years old shutting down companies uh went to business school worked at a company called VMware for 10 years from, like, employee 215,000. Along the way, um, you know, I talked to VC firms and I said, I love shipping product. You know, I want to be a product guy for the rest of my life. And then uh, Anil Bushri, who I think we both know, was a partner um, at Greylock and also co-founder of Workday and CEO. He and I had a relationship back to his early Greylock days, my Accel days. He said, like, Jerry, Greylock is the right place for you. It's a bunch of folks like Reid Hoffman, Anil, a bunch of operators, a bunch of founders. And in 2013, he convinced me to finally be a VC. And that's how it happened. You know, you get um, you get comfortable and get invited and, and you find I think Reed Hoffman says find your group, your DNA, your your people. And I feel very lucky to be a Greylock.
1: It's so interesting. So you have had two different experiences in venture in very different eras of technology, how would you compare and contrast, you know, the, that those early days at Excel versus what's going on today?
0: I mean, both great firms, right, and full of great people. So I would say that they're very smart, very great investors. But to your point, that the eras are very different. So I would say venture capital investing startups, the game's always the same. is Find great founders in very good markets and just back them and, you know, and help them as much as possible. But, you know, in the dot-com days, it was this much smaller industry, right? Even though tech for us was really big, if you look at the amount of capital, the amount of startups, the market cap of the companies, even at the peak of the NASDAQ, it's much smaller than it is today. So now you have, you know, billions and billions and billions of more dollars, more VC firms, uh, accelerators like Y Combinator. You have seed funds, growth funds, international funds. So it, it went from kind of a very smaller community and industry to kind of a global asset class and global community, which also echoes where tech is, right? I think where Salesforce was 10, 15 years ago when it first started to where it is today, you know, it defined cloud, defined SaaS. And you kind of look at the growth of SaaS and cloud over the past 10, 20 years, you look at venture capital and technology has an equal rise in both size, but also significance, right? So now before technology was... um, uh, small sector of the economy, you know, or smaller, now it's the top of the headlines, right? It's the front page of the journals, front page of the New York Times.
1: And arguably every company in every industry is a technology company or wants to be. You
0: no, know, I mean, every every company is a technology company. And as we're talking about, every company now is an AI company, Yes, right? It's, you know, we're saying it's, it's AI or die for both startups and big companies. And um, technology, to your point, Clara, is an ingredient. And AI is the um, atom, if you will, of all the future um, molecules are rebuilding
1: how do you make the time to think about what 's next and and what are your favorite sources for learning and inspiration
0: finding the time. Um and it's actually the inspiration is both. It's going to be cheesy to say, but it's it's really there's founders and individuals that I had the privilege of working with and meeting. And so uh, you meet with hundreds and hundreds of founders all the time, I and mean, you meet with founders and customers yourself. And not every founder I back, but the conversation I have like this is where you find inspiration and a kernel of an idea. And so um, You know, I had a couple meetings this morning with founders doing some great research in AI, and it was ideas I didn't think about before, and I may or may not invest in them. But both, it was, one, um, inspiring to see the research, but number two, uh, thoughtful in terms of, um, oh, that's an idea that I haven't thought about before, or you see this pattern repeat again, um, like using large language models for integrating with SaaS applications, right? It's like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but, oh this is how they're using these large models to integrate with Salesforce or Workday or something else. And you see that pattern repeat over, and over again, and you know, I don't think VCs per se can predict, like, what the next turn of AI research is. That's not our job. The researchers are better at that. But you know, our job is kind of see the patterns and kind of see different founders and, you know, uh, you know, what we call peripheral vision, what's going on to the left and the right, and kind of see what's emerging. And so uh, it takes a lot of time, but you know it's, it's it's what I love. and It's what I sign up for. Like I just love being around these founders and the technologists, and, and kind of learn new things. And it's neat that you know uh, after what twenty five, almost thirty years working technology, and the, uh, beginning the conversation of working the dot com days, now this AI wave that to see all these new waves of technology. Um, it keeps getting energized, right? We've seen the cloud wave, the SaaS wave, the mobile wave, and now this AI wave, you know, and they all build on top of each other. And um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still optimistic. optimist. I'm still excited.
1: I am too. I mean, I think about in the 90s, just how all of us had to reinvent ourselves and everyone we knew had to, change from, you know, the filing cabinet and paper and pencil to digitizing and then the internet and then the cloud and here we are again having to do the same thing but we don't we don't yet all know all the ways that we have to change.
0: Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you see a lot of customers and I'm, I'll ask you some few questions. <laughs> what what gets you excited right now when you think about AI and the customers you interact with? Like what are the tier 3 problems is it security, is it privacy? I mean, I'd be curious what 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 peaks your interest now?
1: The number one thing that I'm hearing from customers, and I'm sure for you too, any of your companies working with the enterprise, it really is around trust, Mm. right? And there's the, the data security and data privacy aspect of it. There's also the ethical, responsible output side of it. And so we've put so much of our effort Um, as a company and as an entire ecosystem on how do we build out this trust layer, which is a set of technologies, but also an ecosystem of partners, it's policy, it's working with lawmakers and regulators to really figure out how do we deliver this in a safe and responsible way. Well, I think that's a a worthy requirement from customers. Well, Jerry, this has been so insightful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a ton. Um, and and thank you for your partnership, as Of course. always.
0: Thank you for your support, always, as, as a great um, citizen of the tech ecosystem. Salesforce is one of those great companies that we admire and actually inspires myself, inspires a bunch of founders out there. So I'm excited to be here. And um, let me know when you want to turn the tables. I'll interview you next.
1: Looking forward to it. All right, some amazing takeaways from Jerry. First, that the old modes of business are the new modes of business and that more than ever, trust is number one. It is absolutely imperative for getting AI and data right. That's all for this week on Ask More of AI, the podcast at the intersection of AI and business. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. To learn more about Salesforce AI, join our Ask More of AI newsletter on LinkedIn. See you next time.